they have data and nobody else does. You want you want to see the potholes on the Golden Gate Bridge? Who else has cameras rolling around the Golden Gate Bridge right now? That's a huge amount of data for Tesla to have. You know, so we start thinking about it. There's an accident on the Golden Gate Bridge right now. Where would you get information, right? Where would you get video or a nerf of the burning car on the on the Golden Gate Bridge? Tesla's going by every five seconds and can even stop and start shooting videos. And if you have three pictures of a burning car, now you have a neural radiance field that you can walk around with in augmented reality glasses. So think about that one for a second. Dear friends, it's Kurt Derdix and welcome back. If this is your first time listening, then I'm so glad you found us. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with my friend, Robert Scoble, the trailblazing tech blogger, a.k.a. Scobalizer. Robert Scoble started writing about tech from his perch in Silicon Valley in the 80s and went on to be an evangelist at Microsoft and Rackspace. Robert's brand became the first to see it guy. He was the first to see Tesla literally ride number one with Elon. You could see it all on Engadget. First to see Instagram, Uber, Siri, and so many other tech companies. Robert's now using his expertise to consult with startups as we head into the spatial computing revolution. A broad category virtual and augmented reality along with robotics and autonomous vehicles. Robert had a pivotal part in my early career when in 2009 he invited my little startup city source to do an interview for his blog. This interview catalyzed meetings with some of the top VCs in Silicon Valley, helped us get funded in what at the time was a nuclear winter of funding post great financial crisis. Fast forward to 2017, Robert got canceled by the New York Times in a very public, embarrassing part of the Me Too movement. This experience blew up his life and his career. And Robert, to his credit, has spent the last five years picking up the pieces and rebuilding. And he's now doing his best to make a living amends. Robert gets real and honest about what gifts this experience gave him and how he's been able to help others that have dealt with similar situations. Also, for what it's worth, I did some digging with the community at Silicon Valley about what Robert did, and he got drunk at a party and slapped a woman's butt. The folks that I spoke to that are close to the situation said the woman has a reputation for attention seeking and used this opportunity to get her 15 minutes of fame. This does not discount the fact that what Robert did was wrong. He freely admits that he fucked up and what the consequences of his actions have been. But after doing the work and walking through the steps, hearing his honesty demonstrates the growth. And my own experience in helping my dad get sober and watching my father rebuild and become a beacon of light in his community gives me hope that Robert can walk a similar path. The paradox is that oftentimes our deepest pain gives us our power and our best gifts. And that's what the show is all about. We're all human. We all make mistakes. You know, if we can get accountable and get real and clean it up, humans are usually pretty forgiving. And I refuse to live in a world where we cannot be redeemed. If you've been a Scoble fan in the past, I think you'll find this interview to be worth digging into. For anyone interested in surfing the emerging future, his analysis of what's on the horizon is prescient and well worth absorbing. 
please go to curtyd.com to subscribe to my newsletter and see what special content I've created. And on to today's show, here's Scoble. Robert, so good to see you, my friend. Yeah, I'm so excited to have to be on your show. Where are you today? In San Jose, in my uh, home in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I love your uh, home office setup. It looks great. I'm right in the middle of the kitchen. <laughs> my, my wife works at home too. She's in the in her office in the back, and I have my space out out in the middle of the house. So, why well, I, I I so appreciate you taking time. This is a very very special episode for me, Robert, for a couple different reasons. As you know, we caught up a couple weeks back, and we had this wonderful conversation. I was able to share what a big impact you had on my career, and you know, I I first discovered you through Jason Calacanis's Twitter feed. Oh wow! Probably like 2007, and he was retweeting these video blogs that you were making, and you were interviewing these founders and. And I was just completely enamored and mesmerized. I mean, you, there was this energy and you were just so like, you were surfing the emerging future. Still am. I'm doing marketing for a stealth mode ro robotics company. <laughs> I still am. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and kind of fast forward, uh, Jason invited, Jason Calacanis invited us to present at TechCrunch 50 in 2009. That was sort of the predated TechCrunch Disrupt. And we ended up making finals with our little 311 mobile app, City Sourced. We were trying to promote civic engagement so people can take photos of things, graffiti, potholes, and geotag it, send it to the city. And we ended up making third place and got a lot of attention. And uh, you outreached to us and invited us on your podcast or your blog. And I remember we sat in our CMO's office, home office in San Francisco, and he didn't even have any furniture, and we sat on the floor. A real startup. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't even have money to buy furniture. <laughs> and then I remember we ended up having some issues with that recording, and you had us come, we did it again, and you were you, and it was rocky. Yeah. And you guys were so cool. And it was like, for me, it was like, wow, like this was a big milestone and a, a lot of validation. I, I would imagine that my story is pretty common for folks that were trying to break into the market, you know, getting to some time and, and to be on your show as a big validator. And uh, that actually helped us from that. We got calls from Sequoia and you name it and, and a lot of relationships. Even now, my best customer at, at Hunt Club is Mark Dempster, former head of marketing at Sequoia. And we took a meeting with him very much in part because of your blog. So I, I thank you so much. Thanks. Now that's the good old days now. <laughs> yeah, back then the media landscape was quite different. I mean, now you have Twitter's all built out and Facebook and LinkedIn. Back then, there wasn't strong channels for startups to get their ideas heard by people, right? Uh, yeah. I was the first one to link to TechCrunch, right? So my blog was around before TechCrunch, before Product Hunt, before AngelList, right? And, um, you know, Y Combinator, I don't think they even started, right? They started later. And, and so there was just not that ecosystem for startups that there is today, you know? Yeah. So I think that's a great segue, Robert, to uh, rewind a bit. So catch us up. You grew up in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, my dad was an engineer and he got a PhD at Rutgers and moved us here in 1971 
to work at Ampex, which made the first VCR, made re recording equipment, it, 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 tape recording equipment. We don't even use tapes anywhere. What the hell is a tape? You know? <laughs> but, but yeah, that's what got us to Cupertino, California in 1971. And this little company called Apple started in 1976, you know? Do you remember your first computer? My, it was an Apple II. In fact, we built Apple IIs at home. My mom had a job with Hildy Licht here in the Valley. Uh, she's still in business. She does contract manufacturing with housewives in the Valley. And um, so Apple ran out of manufacturing capabilities in their own factories. And so they hired Hildy Licht to build uh, extra motherboards. And my mom had a whole setup in the kitchen and she would solder the boards and the kids would earn an allowance by stuffing the boards. So I've seen quite, you know, hundreds of Apple II motherboards in my day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a fun story. But yeah, my dad bought an Apple II in 1977 and I was at high junior high in the first computer club in Cupertino and they bought Apple IIs in 1977. Wow. Talk about ground zero and sort of, you know, kind of right place, right time in the right, right community. Were there similar to how you had a big impact on me and, and even folks like, you know, I worked at Esri, you got to work for Jack Dangerman, CEO there for a long time and big impact on my career. Are there people that you met early on that were, were that for you? In 1989, I was at West Valley Community College and I kept seeing a, a car with the license plates of Waz. And that's Apple's co-founder's car. And I was like, what is Apple co-founder doing at a community college? <laughs> that's not where you think you would find, you know, somebody who started the, the richest company in the world. I started waking up earlier and earlier until I got there before his car did. He, he's a very engineer, very structured person. He parked in the same parking space at exactly the same time every morning. <laughs> so, so I started meeting him at his car. I got an interview with him uh, for the school newspaper because I was a journalism student back then and um, started studying with him and then um, pitched him on, hey, uh, can I get on your list for old computers? Because I know you, 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 hand me, you get hand-me-downs because you get the latest, latest stuff. You know? I mean, back then in 89, he, he showed me his dye sublimation color printer. It cost $45,000. It was the first color printer I'd seen. And um, he bought a 400 megabyte RAM drive for $45,000 also to run Photoshop 1.0. So, it's like, man, if I could get, you know, in three years when you get a new one, if I could get that, that'd be cool. <laughs> and he, he went off, he ended up donating about $40,000 worth of stuff to our um, Macintoshes to our journalism department. And our journalism teacher made me set him up because I got all these five, five really nice computers for our journalism department. So. Wow. Steve Wozniak. What a great story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that's something you can't do with a Stanford education. You can't study with Steve Wozniak every morning for a semester. Right? <laughs> so what, what good is your $70,000 a year? <laughs> I guess. I know. I mean, talk about a social engineering hack. That's brilliant. What about Steve um, left a really big impact? Like what, what was sort of like the top insight that comes to mind that you learned from him he was the guy who built who designed the motherboards i was building as a 13 year old or a 14 year old but for my mom and i remember thinking those were the most beautiful thing i'd ever seen right the 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 design of the of the motherboard was really really beautiful to look at it, it was technological it was futuristic it was 
I'd never seen anything like that before because there wasn't anything like that before, right? And so, yeah, he, he was the last human being to have an entire computer in his head, right? Since then, it, it's impossible. It's impossible to even design one little tiny piece of a processor today as a human being. It's just too complex, right? So, but he's very structured, very, you, you can see his genius, how he approaches the world and how he memorizes things and, and how he how he approaches life. I mean, parking in the same parking space, coming at the same exact time every morning, that shows you how structured he was, right? But uh, is there a example of where you were able to kind of borrow from that in your approach to the world? Not there. You know, I was a journal- journalism student, so I and I always liked technology. So that's when I got to San Jose State, that's sort of where I went. I took the Macintosh skills. I led at a community college setting up five computers, and then I set up a hundred at San Jose State. I actually ended up working for the university doing that. So it's a hard person to copy because <laughs> you know, you're not going to go and build a motherboard and I don't have that brain, you know? Yeah. But like for what, maybe like a sort of a primitive example of that is like your Twitter list. Like you do such a good job. Anybody listening, you want to sort of get X-Ray into Silicon Valley, go to, if you're not already following Robert, go to his Twitter and check out his Twitter list. And I think that's like, talk about a systems thinking of a network. I mean, that's been many years, right? Cause I still keep adding to them or, or deleting people, you know, from them. They don't like, I have a list of investors about 5,000 investors. Right. So I, every once in a while, every year or so I go through the list looking for dead, literally dead people. I've removed dead people, people who've died. My, my producer we talked about died a couple of years ago. Right. So. Wow. wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Rocky. He was such a great soul. God. Yeah. He, he made a big impact on the world and yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I went through life my own way, tried to um, take lessons from, from him where I could, but, we're very different. I mean, I was talking to him a month ago about our childhoods, and, and my dad had an electric uh, electronics lab in in the garage, right? And he would bring home parts from Lockheed Martin. He ended up working at Lockheed Martin, building military satellites for thirty years. I figured out if you plugged the capacitors into the wall, so if you took a plug and unwrapped it and put the leads on the end of a capacitor and plugged it in the wall, the capacitor would blow up, and um, I was talking to Wise. He's like, "Yeah, I did the same thing, but but then the difference between me and him is he can explain why it blows up, you know, <laughs> and tell you what the electrons are doing when it's going through the capacitor at a high rate, you know." <laughs> well, I think that's a great sort of like example of part of the spirit of the show. The the positioning is unique perspectives shaping the world, and we all have we're all uniquely special. Like we, that's sort of the paradox I think of human experiences. We all have same biological wiring, and the function works the same. But our and our experience has a lot of overlap. But we're all uniquely different, and I think that's a great segue into like your career. So you study journalism, yeah, at San Diego State, no San Jose State, San Jose State, yeah. yeah. Because it was on the bus line from my dad's house. <laughs> Didn't have the money to buy a car back then. <laughs> what about journalism captured your imagination or what was it that moved you down that path? 
I was actually trying to study computer science at the at the beginning because my dad always wanted me to get a technical degree, right? And because he was an engineer and saw the degree took us out of poverty and to the place where I'm talking to you right now by going to school, right? And so he wanted me to do the same thing, wanted me to get a a, a technical degree, a, you know, a degree in engineering or something like that. And I tried, and I got through two years of calculus, right? Because computer science, you need a fair bit of math to really do stuff, you know, that's useful. I just didn't like the math. I hated the math. And then the 89 earthquake hit and that gelled it for me. I, I like writing stories. I like telling people what the news is. I like, you know, reporting. I like meeting people. I like understanding new things. The computer science just wasn't working for me. <laughs> yeah. And so I switched in 89 from trying to be a computer scientist to, to journalism. And since then I've interviewed, I don't know, thousands of entrepreneurs all over the world. So, like you, you're one of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's about 6,000 people I interviewed. It's crazy. Later I got a job at Microsoft and um, was in the strategy and the evangelism team. Even there I did six, I interviewed 600 employees at Microsoft from the, from Bill Gates to the janitor and a bunch of people in between. And so that's a pretty unique view of the world. I, I don't know any other human that gets to do that unless they're an executive, you know, and they have to meet with a lot of people. But mo most everyday employees don't get to meet 600 people inside of a big company and understand how it works. I love that. What was special about Bill Gates? Oh, he's so smart. He inhales information and he can spit it back to you six months later. He just has a photographic memory, a memory that, a brain that's pretty unique. By the time I met Bill, he had already been, he'd been running a big company for a while, you know, soft. And so I don't know what he was like as a kid, but as a entrepreneur in the early 2000s, yeah, he's a pretty impressive person to talk with. I, I, I sat on his, under his feet, <laughs> shooting pictures for 45 five minutes at Ted and while talking to him about nuclear power. And he's like, knows more about nuclear power than my dad did. And my dad worked in, in nuclear uh, materials, right. Um, all his life. So he built the radiation shielding on military satellites up above our heads. That's incredible. So just to, I mean, that's part of the spirit of the show too, is, is learning out loud, you know, get to learn. I, I sort of feel like I'm the the beneficiary of all this. I get to sort of vacuum up all these insights. Jack Dangermond at Esri has sort of a photographic memory. And I asked him one time how he did it. And he said, because he was oriented spatially, he's a mapping guy, cartographer that, and there's sort of this, I think the, the Greek orators did this to sort of the palace of the mind and every, everything sort of in a spatial orientation, which I think it, we'll get into more spatial discussion later. No, but they're called memory palaces. And I took a Dale Carnegie class, and that's one of the techniques they used to help you memorize things. If you put it in a physical thing and put words on the physical things that you're building in your mind, you can memorize things. Like like they would say, take a coffee cup, put a word like, you know, Kurt is the name I need to remember. It's on my coffee cup, right? It's easier for your mind to remember things that way. Yeah, there's uh, some kind of neural connectivity. I wonder if in the in the future there'll be some kind of Google Glass augmentation where that we we sort of have a little filing cabinet where some of this stuff goes. 
the people who are building augmented reality know the memory palaces very well when they're thinking about how can you augment the human brain and help people remember things that way. Yeah, absolutely. Soon you won't really need to remember where your keys are. Yeah. Well, thank God for find my crap on my phone here. I, I got... I. Yeah, my keys are over there. and I have an air tag on my keys. So <laughs> you'll never lose my keys anymore. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Douglas Merrill is here in LA and I've known him for a while and he was former VP of engineering at Google early days. He wrote a book about, I can't remember the title, but it was all like he had all these hacks on how to use Google. And it was sort of like a precursor to this idea. Like even, you know, using email, Gmail as a way to just, just send yourself little notes so you can remind yourself things. And yeah, it's it's wild. I, I think the imagination of what you could think of is is a beautiful thing. So you worked at Microsoft. That was a great gig. And then you've, uh, you worked at Rackspace for a long time as well, right? I actually left to join a startup, a media startup that's gone now. But that was interesting. Jeremiah Oyang and Steve Gilmer, who's now at Salesforce, we're all in that startup. And John Furrier ran the startup. He now runs a different company. So yeah, a lot of things happen in a little tiny startup. And then I... Um, uh, in 2009, when the dot-com bust went happened, I was working at Fast Company and had to lay off Rock, Rocky. And Rocky got the job at Rackspace and then called me up and said, you got to come to Rackspace with me. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. It's, it's like the Fast Company gig is really miserable. <laughs> so let's go. <laughs> so wait, what year was that, the Fast Company? Around 2009. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's when I met you. I met you in 2009. And- that was an interesting time because that was sort of the web 2.0 was coming online. And the rest of the world was really going through struggles, right? Banks were going out of business. Yeah, the great financial crisis. Yeah, I mean, we, we ended up raising in 2010, Jack at Esri wrote us, he was our lead investor, and it was $1.3 million Series A in, in 2010. And that was actually kind of a big deal at the time. Yes, Remember when color raised like $40 million and everybody says, that's obscene. <laughs> that's an obscene amount of cash. <laughs> How can a startup deal with that much cash? I know, I know. And then they ended up giving it back. That was hilarious. I saw funding yesterday of $40 million. It was like nobody even cares you know, anymore that that kind of fundraising. Yeah, we do it a bunch of work with Andreessen and they have this new seed vertical. And these, they're for their 15, 10 to $15 million seed checks. Is that crazy? Ten to fifteen million dollars seed? That's not seed. That's like a series. We should just rebrand everything. Like that's like Series A, really. You know, that's not friends and family. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty wild. Unless you got billionaire friends. <laughs> I don't have many billionaire friends who give me money. So, <laughs> so through this whole time, so when did the Scobalizer blog start? Two thousand. So really early, I, my wife and I worked at a company, a magazine company. She wasn't my wife back then. We were working in conferences and we were planning the CNAPbuilder.com live conference under contract at Fawcett. And several of my speakers, Dave Weiner, who I actually ended up working with late, uh, two years later, and Dory Smith told me, oh, we should do a session on blogging because I was talking to all the speakers and saying, what should we do new this year that we didn't do last year? You know, oh, the blogging is hot. I went to this new thing called Google, right? Google was brand new in, in 98. So this was 99. And I was like, there's only 200 blogs. What are you talking about? It's not hot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
but they did start to get me to Starplan and I started sharing inside, you know, the green room, inside the industry stuff I was seeing and, and it, it took off. I mean, Dave Weiner linked to me one time and 3000 people showed up. And I'm like, oh, there's people reading these things. Yeah. And did Dave, Dave founded RSS, like the protocol, right? Or Yeah, at minimum he popularized it, but yeah, I believe I believe he invented most of yeah. So for the non-technical folks, that's really simple syndication as a protocol. It's surprising. It, it's, the, it's the technology underneath podcasting, right? So podcasting, you get an XML file and then it points to the download file, the, the wave file, audio file. And so every day your podcasting tool downloads this RSS feed and looks for the audio files that you want, right? So yeah, foundational stuff that was really important in the day because people were innovating, innovating on all sorts of new kinds of readers, right? Yep. For these RSS feeds, right? Google Reader back in the day and was really a precursor of like Twitter. One of the phenomena that I've experienced has been kind of weird is sort of discounting like what radical transformation that I've been living through and just sort of just sort of taking it for granted. Right. My first TV camera. So I, I, I've been in TV for a long time. I, I worked at a church in the eighties and my first TV camera was $130,000. Wow. And it had tubes. Yep. <laughs> and, and they had to be aligned with an oscilloscope. You had to heat up the tubes for an hour. And then you had to align them with an oscilloscope. I mean, now your iPhone has way better cameras and doesn't need to be heated up and is way smaller and, you know, and I mean, there's a little robot underneath the set, the lenses in your iPhone that moves the sensor around as you shake the phone. I didn't have anything like that, right? I mean, it's amazing where we've come and where we're about to go. I mean, next Christmas, we're going to be at 3D football games in neural radiance fields, which we should talk about at some point. Yeah. Let's talk about it now. I think, like, what is your sense of the emerging future? Like, what do you see in the yeah, the robot, I'm working for Giant AI, which is a stealth mode robot company, builds robots for manufacturing lines. And the way the robot sees is it builds a neural radiance field with its two camera eyes. So let's talk about cameras. I love cameras, by the way. I'm, I'm a photography freak. I don't know if you do photography or not, but I, I've, I almost went into photography professionally, right? because of this background in TV and cameras and photography. I used to work at a camera store or several camera stores in Silicon Valley, right? So anyway, so an iPhone camera takes uh, flat 2D images with uh, pixels, right? The grids of pixels. And the, the neural radiance fields are a 3D image of the world built by the, those 2D pixels. So the AI takes a 2D photo or 2D video and translates what's in 2D into uh, 3D on the real world. So it builds a 3D thing you can move through, right? So my robot, the robot company I'm working with, builds these 3D things, these 3D scenes around you with two cameras, and then it it moves through the neural radiance field. It, it actually sees the world as this radiance field. It's not seeing the real world. It, it's translated the real world into something it can understand and move around. That's one. Last week, I saw a startup that is building these radius fields in front of a car at 80 miles an hour, and then it drives through the radius fields, right? So it uses two cameras to see the world 
convert the real world into a 3D thing that it can drive through and does that. And next year's augmented reality headsets that are coming from Apple and from Meta are going to be neural radiance field viewers. So you're going to have two cameras on your glasses and it's going to recreate like a football game in 3D in your living room. So it's going to be pretty fantastic. And you'll hear a lot more about radiance fields because they're so important to AI right now, right? To the, the computer vision field, to the ability for robots or autonomous cars or augmented reality glasses to bring us new capabilities. Yeah, I mean, I think back to my point about discounting the transformation, technological transformation. Kevin Kelly, who you probably know, co-founder of Wired Magazine, the Whole Earth Catalog, which is like a primitive precursor to Google search. He wrote a book called What Technology Wants. Yeah. And he has this idea that the tech is like the eighth biological kingdom. And that as God, it's a metaphor, sort of an interesting narrative idea that as God created man, man has created technology and technology has its own sort of self-determinate propagation to, to sort of go forth and, and spread its thing. And it's, it's such a powerful thing. I, it's a real trip. I think like, you know, I'm a big fan, fan of Raul Paul. He has a, a website called realvision.com, does a lot of finance analysis. And he has this framework that we're living in the exponential age. Yeah. You have like these factors of like Moore's law, which most of us know about Reed's law, which I did not know about until uh, uh, Raul talked about it, which is sort of the, another kind of network idea. These, you, you know, you sort of mentioned Jeremiah O'Young and that whole crew social media folks with the sort of like this hype cycle. It feels like things are speeding up. Yes, they are actually, particularly in the AI fields. The, For instance, even the radius fields, I wrote about them on my twi on Twitter and a, a guy wrote back and, and said, what's re really interesting is a year ago, they it used to take hours to join two photos and make a 3D scene, right? Now it takes real time. So they can take two photos and make a 3D scene on your iPhone, you know, live, almost live. And in just a year, that's happened, right? So the speed of which this the technology is building these radiance fields is going, is exponentially changing. It's crazy. And that's just one little technology out of the whole stack. Yeah. And in the context of Real Vision, we're doing finance news, you know, there was this idea that as the information hype cycle spreads people are learning more and some of these like boom and bust cycles are actually going to be you know uh, the intervals will be shorter yeah no we're seeing several in exponential things going on the compute cell semiconductors are still getting small at a pretty good rate the amount of data that's being collected like even at tesla you start thinking about where was tesla three years ago they had a, a few hundred thousand cars on the road now they have 1.5 million or maybe even two million you know they're kicking out out of one factory sixty thousand cars a month right and so you start thinking about oh well, wait a second how, how many cars are on the road around me and how, how many cameras are on that and how, how much uh, ai is being done Ooh, <laughs> that's something that we haven't seen before yeah what excites you about it and what trepidation do you have well i have lots we do twitter spaces every every evening with uh the community there's a whole community that uh, gets together every night and talks about this stuff and 
there's a lot of downsides to this new technology. In fact, that guy who's working on them at Apple said, said we're creating a bomb with this new technology. We're, we're creating real problems, but we're also, it's a very powerful new technology. It can get you over your PTSD. It can teach you a lot faster. It can take you to a 3D football game, right? There's a lot of really cool, amazing things that are coming, but it could also be used to control people in a whole new way. And that's a real problem. Um, it could really de destroy any democracy that exists because if you change 3% of people's minds with with visualizations and with controlling what they're seeing and hearing, it, you can change you know, your country that way. Yeah, that reminds me of a book I read. I think it was Jaron Lerner. Lanier, yeah. Lanier, yeah. And it, let's see, what book was it? Books. He wrote a he book. He named uh, VR. Right. Or was he the guy who came up with VR? He was an early VR. Yeah. Yeah. He's the guy with the dreads. He wrote a book called Who Owns the Future? And it's his, the conceit of the book is the owner of the future is those that have the biggest supercomputing capability. That and who is collecting the data that requires that supercomputer. Tesla, for instance, right? Think about a million and a half cars rolling around the world right now with eight cameras on it. That's generating a huge amount of data. Yeah. And that's why you need the data center to process that data and make new AI models out of it. Yeah. I mean, they get into a whole crazy thing. And now with Elon close to getting Twitter over the line, I mean, I mean, this gets into uh, Plato's Republic, which I read. I try to read it like every 4th of July. Uh, and this idea that, you know, there's some pretty wild ideas in the book. And he talks about, you know, sort of a benevolent dictator is sort of the most efficient form of government. Yeah, a dictator can move fast. This is why we miss Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs wasn't a real nice person. I've met him a few times, you know, and, and my best friend worked for him for 11 years. They, they, he doesn't like Steve Jobs, even though he worked for him for 11 years, right? But Steve could make decisions faster than anybody else because he was Steve Jobs. Everybody listened to him. Right. And nobody fought with him <laughs> that much. Right. So he was able to, to move people and, and force people to move. Right. In a way that a committee just can't do. Yeah. Yeah. We are living in wild times. I mean, I, I, I am a big Elon Musk fan. I know he's uh, very controversial, but I got, I have so much respect for the guy. And I sort of like my intuition, which is, is not flawless by any means, feels like, if, if he were to sort of have this, he already, you know, if, if you take this who owns the world or who owns the future idea to your point about, you know, compute in the context of I've, I've even heard him talk about AI being a, he has a lot of concerns about it, right? Pretty vocal. Yeah. He sees a lot of the same problems coming that others do. And he's building it. His AI is way ahead of anybody else's. He had the first automatic tagging system as, as an AI. So think about your guitar behind you. It, to train a computer to understand that's a guitar on your wall, you'd have to train a few photos of that and say, that's a guitar, that's a guitar, that's a guitar, right? In the old days, you'd have to do it a hundred times. Now the AI knows that's a guitar before you even tag it. It puts guitar on on that automatically. And the computer vision already recognizes, I think Chooch says they recognize 200,000 objects in, on an iPhone. Right? Remarkable. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. When I was at Esri, we were doing a bunch of work with computer vision, did some stuff with Mobileye. We got into a lot of stuff. We, even the drone market with like drone deploy and, and companies like that. It's, it's really, really uh, amazing. Have you ever met Elon? Oh yeah. He gave me the first ride in his first Tesla. No way. Your ride number one? I had number one. <laughs> it's on Engadget. You can read all about it. <laughs> I have pictures of serial model number one on his, uh, you know, on his uh, first roadster. Yeah, I was actually at dinner with Jason Calacanis, you mentioned before. Yeah. And Jason Jason is really good friends with Elon and said, oh, I think Elon just got his new car. <laughs> Let's call him up. <laughs> he was down there in 20 minutes. It was awesome. And then we went for a race in Santa Monica because Jason back then had a Corvette. Yeah, so we we raced, and then uh, J- Jason became one of the first investors in Tesla because of that. Race. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how I discovered Tesla through Jason. He um, had an orange, kind of the early one, which was the Lotus, was it or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he had a really early S Tesla S. Yeah, and I was over at the office, and Tyler Crowley, who's one of my best friends, and actually how I know great episode. He was on the on the show episode, I think ten talking about he bought an or he lives in an island in a resort out in thailand we call it Tylerland, but that's a whole nother but he basically they gave me a preview of the car i saw and i was like oh my god this is amazing and i i guess i got an early preview that it was about to get announced as car and driver's year the car of the year so i ended up buying some tesla stock at like 30 dollars a share Ooh, good job i know jurgensen who's the other early investor bought it at two cents a share Right. He, he invested millions of dollars in Tesla at two cents a share. Think about that. Right. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. Jason brought his brother in law, Ryan Scott, into the early stuff. Uh, Ryan's a good friend of mine. Yeah. So I was sort of aware of Tesla pretty early. And um, it's been, been incredible to watch. I just, I'm rooting for the guy. I sort of, you know, I feel like he's like a, a true live Tony Stark, Iron Man. I just watched a video. Uh, there was an update yesterday of this full self-driving beta, and I watched a video of somebody who built who uh, drove it through um, Berkeley's uh, small streets. It's just absolutely amazing. I mean, it goes through something so narrow that it tells you I'm folding in my mirrors to go through this thing, right? And it's like literally six inches from walls on both sides. It figured out it could actually fit through the wall, through that small space if it folded in the mirrors. I mean, what's coming is insane. Computers are going to take over. <laughs> and once you trust in a self-driving car like that, with your life, with your family's life, you change as a human being. You change how you think of technology from that, that point on. Yeah, I wonder, like, there's this idea of the overview effect where... Uh, astronauts when they sort of see uh, the earth and the, and then there's that photo I remember being a kid and seeing an image of the earth it really changed me it was like like a like mushrooms or something where you have this expanded consciousness I wonder if there'll be kind of a similar effect that's sort of analogous to that I'm sure there's some academic wonky term for it but there are uh, uh, particularly if you get into bio biology medicine if you start looking at the human cell the pictures i'm seeing of human cells now i'm even on linkedin there's a guy who retweets the latest latest imagery of the human uh, of cells of things that are really small really changes your whole perspective of how what are we we're really 
trillions of little machines that are all wrapped together in a humanoid form. You know, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Behind me is IBM Research up on the hill. They have a machine there that lets you move a single atom across a piece of copper, right? And once you do that, and once you see that, see that that you can actually see what an atom is, that really changes your mind too. It's like, wait a second, I'm not seeing the real world even around me. It, this is not the real world. This is not the atomic world. We can't sense the atomic world unless you go over that machine, right? <laughs> like all. Well, your guitars are actually vibrating right now. If we could see the atomic world, we would see the little atoms vibrating. <laughs> well, I think there is like, I mean, at some point, um, a couple episodes ago, I had credible human on the show and he's running for governor in uh, the state of Arkansas. And uh, his name is Chris Jones, Chris Jones for governor. And he's a PhD from MIT, studied nuclear engineering and urban planning. He, he's a, a black guy, studied math and physics at Morehouse, uh, where a black college that Dr. King went to. He's also an ordained minister. And we got into this whole discussion about, like, is there a world where physics and religion sort of intersect? And it was a pretty, pretty wild discussion. Go to the Worldwide Telescope on, on the web. That's a free uh, free resource that Microsoft Research built. It takes 30 different telescopes and puts them on a website that you can fly through the universe. And you start thinking about how many billions of light years things are that the Hubble telescope can see. It starts changing your ideas of how, uh, what, what are we? What, you know, what's, what, what is the game here? It's a big game. <laughs> <You know? laughs> What do you think Elon's tapped into that has given him the insight and the the le- and the and the le- the energy? Like there there must be some sort of leverage that he's been able to sort of like figure out. I mean, I've heard him talk about him reading that that book when he was on this trip when he was young. You know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. A friend of mine put it this way: Elon studied economics and physics in school. And economics is the laws of man, right? That governs us. Money governs us, right? And physics is the laws of God, right? What what, what did the forces create for us to to be part of? You know, understanding that is really understanding what other people call God. I don't believe in a, a you know a sky being, you know, a thing that. You, if that's up there, I don't believe in that. But the forces that created us are evil, and you better understand those if you're going to build a rocket company or a car company or a boring company, a digging company. You better understand them in physics at a deep level, right? Yeah, I've had this like kind of gnawing kind of thing in the back of my brain. I I never studied physics in school, surprisingly, and it's been one of the things that I feel like if I were to go and dig in, that would probably really help me. I mean, just the idea of systems thinking, first principles. I mean, that's what Jack and, and Scott Morehouse at Esri brought to the party was sort of a first principles thinking because everything that they're doing is rooted in physics and geography, right? You know, very math-based. If you go over to CERN where the web started, and see the sensor arrays there, that they're huge. They're like 10 times higher than my house, right? So think of 10 houses stacked on top of each other. That's a sensor, right? Yeah. It's insane. But the people who run those sensors 
are studying how particles collide and what happens after the particles collide, right? That's what the sensors are there for, to understand how particles disintegrate as they crash into each other and what forces are under underway there. They talk a language I don't understand. Even after hanging out with them for three hours, I still don't understand it. It's like I grasp pieces of it, like quarks and all sorts of stuff. But it's a real interesting field. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Brett Weinstein. He's incredible. He's running Teal Capital or, or, or a VC. He's over there. He was a physicist at MIT, and he's part of what they describe as this cabal of the intellectual dark web, which Joe Rogan's a part of, Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, or Eric Weinstein, I'm sorry. Eric and Brett are brothers, but Eric yeah. I'm talking about, but Brett is part of it as well. He's been on a bunch of podcasts. There's one that I'm obsessed with, which is the Lex Friedman podcast. Yeah. Yeah, and he's the Lex's MIT engineering guy, brings all these people. He's had a Elon on a bunch. But Eric, what I learned listening to him on the Lex's show was that the two there's two branches of physics that are unreconciled. And I didn't know that. What branches are those? Well, there's like the Einstein camp you know, the relativity theory. And then there's this other camp of Niels Bohr, which is sort of the quantum world. They're not on the same page. Well, that'll be interesting. Yeah, to see. How do they get on the same page? Because someday somebody's going to win, right? And write a science paper and get it peer-reviewed and prove the other side's a little whack or or combine the two approaches and say, oh, this is a theory that combines my, way over my pay grade. <laughs> Do you have a framework around spatial or talk to us about spatial? Like why? I mean, I think a lot of the stuff we just talked about with AI and, and uh, the imagery and all compute is, is, is probably good, good sort of context, but what's your perspective on it? And what what are the right kind of questions I should be asking you about spatial? Oh man, I don't even know. (laughs) That's a good one. I mean, I got into spatial because I, I, I went to Munich and met, met with, um, the founders of Matayo, which is an augmented reality company back 10 years ago, Apple bottom after I visited. And so there's, they are really running the, the, they set up the, the augmented reality program for Apple. Right. So they were, they've got bought. And then that team set up the whole thing. We haven't even seen it really a product ship from yet. Right. They showed me monsters on the sides of skyscrapers 11 years ago, and we still don't really have that. I mean, staff is showing how that works, but in glasses, only a few people can get with really shitty optics. We're, we're not yet into that world, but you can see that soon we're going to move from computing on flat pieces of glass to computing with computing everywhere, right? I'm sitting in a grid of volumetric pixels, right? Millions, millions and millions, every little... Every little piece of space has a, a volumetric pixel there, right? A computer can keep track of that. I can't. Um, and so I started seeing companies like that. I saw Prime Sense from Israel who built the sensor that now is inside your phone right there. In fact, you can see it blinking. See yeah. Yep. The camera can see it blinking. I, I, My human eye can't see it blinking, but the camera can see it blinking. And look at how often it's blinking. Yeah, it's like persistent blink. And what it's doing is putting a pattern of data on, uh, it's putting a grid of little laser light on your face and making a 3D model of your face as it's looking at you, right? Doing all sorts of stuff. And it's blinking. Look at how fast it's blinking. 
It's just sitting there. Hey, where's your face? Give me your face. <laughs> right? It was, yeah, it, 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 it's, not blinking, it's not blinking as fast, no. No, no, it blinks different speeds you know, based on how much you're moving the phone and what can it see, right? Anyways, it's sitting there drawing things on your face and making a, a 3D image of your face, just a little sensor. And there's another one on the back that's watching the room, right? So it can sense what the room is building a 3D map of the room. We're heading into a new paradigm of computing where we're not looking at flat screens anymore as much. We're in computing. And this is how your robots work now. This is how your autonomous car works. This is how your augmented reality glasses will work in the future. And this is how your virtual beings that are coming next year, because we should talk about that maybe. That's going to be the fun thing. It's like, are you going to fall in love with a virtual being? Yeah. <laughs> well, what was that? You have a permanent friend with you all day long. It knows every fucking thing in the world, right? You can ask it any, you know, we already have a thing that we can talk to all day long and gives us answers, right? That's the new kind of computing. So you add that kind of computing with these, these glasses that are coming. Is there a label that you call this? Like my friend, Amber Case, who worked with us at Esri, we acquired her, her firm. Uh, she's been work- talking about this label of calm technology i don't know if that relates to it i think it's sort of in the background is there any label that you're calling this stuff that's sort of persistently hidden no i call call it spatial computing because it's computing that we move around in yeah right instead of having to pick up our computing and look at it we can talk to it and it can show us things right in in 3d space in 3d we don't yet have a good example of that. I mean, I, I do have a Microsoft HoloLens, but most people don't right, have that. And most people don't have a Magic Leap or an Unreal pair of glasses yet. They, they're not paying attention to this new field yet. Yeah. yeah, It's coming and it's a big one. It's a big change for human beings, right? Bigger than the phone was. And think about how, how our daily habits change just, just by getting this little the ice in our hands, right? Yeah. Well, I think that gets back to this theme that I've, I've mentioned a few times of sort of discounting and taking the the transformation for granted in the iPhone. I thought it was cool, but I didn't really get how big of a deal it was. I don't think it must have. I was first in line for the first iPhone at Steve Jobs' store. We had an idea it was a big deal. If we knew what was going to happen at we would have started Instagram right there in the store line, right? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> Somebody <laughs> else did that two years later. Right? It took two years for Instagram to happen and two years for Google for Uber to happen, right? If we were standing in line and started working on Uber, we probably would be doing there. Right? Yeah. Well, that's what was with City Source. We were like, all right, this phone we can do like it has location. We can take a photo. Like that was sort of a novel thing. We were trying to use the tech as a lever to get people to be more engaged with civic engagement. You know, we, in hindsight, we probably should have gone down like kind of a next door path. We ended up getting the business sold, by the way, a couple of years back. I mean, think about a Tesla car rolling by a pothole. Doesn't it have the ability to see that pothole? Doesn't it have the ability to? Say there's a pothole at XYZ 3D space. Doesn't it have the ability yeah. to report that to the government now? So your idea is just early, right? Yeah. There's an information product that they could uh, have government subscribe to 100%. Yeah. There's a Tesla driving across the Golden Gate Bridge every few seconds now. Yeah. You go out there and start counting Teslas. 
it's literally every five to 20 seconds while he's going by. So you start thinking of, oh, what can that thing see that human beings can't even, it can see a pothole forming, right? And, and measure how fast it's growing. And so it knows exactly the date to make sure you fix it by, right? Before it starts damaging cars, because it can watch the growth of this pothole over time. Yeah, there's certain stuff the city might not want to know about because uh, it puts them on notice. You know, they might not have the resources to fix it. Maybe that would be a Twitter list, you know, potholes around the world. <laughs> you can watch the potholes <laughs> from the Tesla cars, you know. And soon Tesla glasses, by the way, Apple's not going to be alone. There, there's glasses underway at Amazon, Tesla, NVIDIA, Snap, and a whole bunch of Chinese companies like, like Pika. And uh, yeah, and and real. I mean, I, there's a lot of things coming in the next few years. That's healthy. A couple more questions there, and then we'll kind of round out to the show. Like, what? Who are you bullish on as far as spatial computing in the consumer state? And uh, Tesla, Tesla, they have data that nobody else does. You want you want to see the potholes on the Golden Gate Bridge? Who else has cameras rolling around the Golden Gate Bridge right now? That's a huge amount of data for Tesla to have. You know, so we start thinking about it. There's an accident on the Golden Gate Bridge right now. Where would you get that informa- information? Right? Where would you get video or a nerf of the burning car on the on the Golden Gate Bridge? The Tesla's going by every five seconds and can even stop and start shooting videos. And if you have three pictures of a burning car. Now you have a neural radiance field that you can walk around with in augmented reality glasses. So think about that one for a second. Have they mentioned trying to monetize the data and sell it to folks? Not, not sell it. They're building augmented reality glasses. So they're going to monetize it that way. And, and he's buying Twitter. So now he has distribution for information, right? So if a Tesla car is building you a neural radius field of a car wreck on the Golden Gate Bridge or anywhere, it can put that on a new kind of 3D map, a new kind of thing that you're walking around in your living room if you wanted to. That's crazy. And certainly if you're in the Cybertruck in five years and it's doing this, you're going to be able to see why this traffic just stopped and watch the the car burn down and watch the fire trucks show up. I mean, it's going to be that crazy. Our Home Depot just burned down, right, in South San Jose. How many Teslas saw that thing burning down? Thousands. So do you think, but isn't there going to be a mechanism where as a Tesla owner, you have to like opt in to allow your data to be shared with the public? Yes. And you'll do that because it'll be cool. (laughs) You're probably not wrong. And by the way, you're not thinking right. In a few years, this thing is fully autonomous. There's no human being involved. Elon Musk will say, go and grab me some data. Yeah, totally. You know, most of the owners now, you know, some people say, no, 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 I don't want, I don't want that. But those people don't buy Teslas. There's a camera staring at you in the Tesla. So if you're a privacy freak, don't buy a Tesla. That's not, that's not going to be a good outcome for you. (laughs) Well, I think that's a primary conceit of Silicon Valley's product management community is that privacy erodes with convenience. We're about to erode a lot of privacy because... Soon we're going to be wearing devices with two cameras in our homes, and that that 
already can see it, see every item. So it knows that's a, you know, who is an art uh, coffee maker over there. And that's a Sony TV and that's a June oven over there. It's going to know where all of those things are in 3d space. And it's going to know all sorts of stuff. Like what food brands do you buy? What do you hold? What do you touch? What do you look at? You know, there's going to be eye sensors in these things. So you start putting that together. It's like privacy is really fucked. Like, like if it wasn't fucked before, sorry for the bad yeah, yeah. No, no, it's fine. It's going to be super fucked. <laughs> <laughs> it's super fucked, right? It's like, wait a second. And and like even Amazon, right? I have a ring doorbell. That's Amazon. Amazon gets to see me coming in my house every, every time I walk up to the door because it tells my phone, oh, oh, there's somebody at the front door, right? It's over. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> we're just going to keep shooting the privacy horse in the head <laughs> until it's really good. All right. So let's do a quick little like uh, rapid fire. So Amazon, what are they doing right with spatial and where are they going to blow it? Well, they have things They have, where they're doing it right is in the warehouses. They have millions of robots rolling around these huge warehouses, moving products around and packaging products and doing things, helping the human beings. So that's spatial computing, right? So the infrastructure that Amazon has is spatial computing. They, on the consumer side, they have these go stores where they have sensors all over. The, if you look at the ceiling, if you go into one of these stores, it lets you go in and, and grab a package, like a, grab a bag of chips and walk out of the store without, without paying for it. it. It charges you automatically on your phone, right? But there's sensors all over the ceiling that are watching you right cameras and 3d sensors there's even weight sensors in the in the sh shelves to help the ai realize whether you pick something up whether you put it back on the shelf etc cetera, etc cetera. that's spatial computing because it's computing in space it's computing you're walking around and in so that's a retail store that amazon's doing someday they're going to take take that to your house they're going to have automatic shopping because they're going to know how much milk you i already buy a lot of things on amazon right well, then they they have AWS too, so like they have such an advantage. Yeah, yeah. Well, I bought I bought some more AWS stock on sale this last week, or no, Amazon. I mean Amazon. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean Amazon understands products better than any other company, right? They know every product in my house, and they have a three D model of it of that product. And they have the sales data of that product. They have the ability to get that product from a factory to your house pretty quick, right? They have that infrastructure and very few of the company, you know, even Walmart is copying, right? Is following. Where, where, where's Amazon's Achilles heel? Brand. The DNA of the company is a retail kind of company, i.e. the margins, the profit margins are very small. And so... They built themselves to be very efficient with a dollar, right? But not very sexy. So they don't have a good brand. They don't have a brand that makes you feel warm. Yeah. It, it's a utilitarian brand. It gets you a product fast or it gets you a product cheaper. But it's it's not something I feel, I, I'm not wearing an Amazon logo on my shirt right now, right? Why is this logo, the Apple logo, means warmth and something nice to me. Amazon is like a utilitarian brand. It's uh, colder and, and doesn't have that same warmth. So that that's going to keep them from competing with Apple head on, right, in Apple space. But Apple can't compete with them because Apple doesn't have warehouses with millions of robots rolling around, right? So so 
these two companies are going to be interesting to watch as uh, as we get into this new 3D computing, into this new spatial computing. What, what, same question for Apple. What, what are, what, what's their advantage and what, what's their Achilles heel? Um, their advantage is everything other than their arrogance. And so their arrogance could lead them down a path where they know they're on top. They have all the cash. <laughs> they have all the profits in the industry, right? Out of all the cell, they only sell 10% of the cell phones, but they make 90% of the profits. It gets you slower and slower over time and more and more arrogant. And we'll see what happens after they bring out these glasses because they're going to wake up the world to this new 3D computing. And maybe in five years, I'm not wearing an Apple computer, right? Maybe I'm wearing a Tesla computer or an Amazon computer, right? Because the Amazon model might be more interesting to consumers because it understands every product in your house. Apple does Apple can't get me products, right? So now if I'm shopping, do I take the Apple pair of glasses off and put the Amazon ones on? Or did they make a deal and there's uh, Amazon layer in the Apple ones again, you know? And are they, is there a good app, app ecosystem? I don't know, right? Have you met Tim Cook? Yeah, bre- real briefly a couple of times. I, I like him a lot. I think he's the most under, underrated CEO on the on the field right now. Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting. It'd, it'd be interesting to see if maybe he can, uh, you know, bring some of that, that humility. Well, he, he won best TV show in the last year, best movie in the last year, best music in the last year, all of which are built by Apple, right? So he's operating, he's building a new kind of product family that merges the hardware with the content which could be very powerful for apple because like like football they're buying up the exclusive tv rights for football why are they doing that because they know that soon we're going to be watching football in devices in 3d and they're going to disrupt tv right but he also has fitness he has hundreds of fitness videos every every week Right, he has fitness videos on dancing, Pilates, biking, weightlifting, right? Martial arts. Nobody else does. Yeah, and it's stuck with your Apple Watch and your rings. The rings are on your screen, and so as you're exercising on your exercise bike, it's playing games with you. It's like, oh, you just closed your loop, yeah, you right, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, so we're recording this May of 2022. NASDAQ is down, I think, almost 20% for the year. Tech's having a big sell-off. Apple and Apple and million. They haven't really had as much pain as the rest of the the market. I actually bought more Apple this week too. So they're down a little bit. They at the high they were almost 180. Now they're 150 or something like that. Right. Apple on sale. Everybody's on sale, but Apple is staying up. You're right. Apple. Yeah. yeah. Like Facebook dropped thirty percent or twenty something like that, right? Apple's dropped a bit, but not as much. And so, Apple, why is that happening? Because the market knows a major new product is coming, and you never bet a com- against a company that has a major new product. This this product that's coming next year is the most expensive product of all time in any industry. So when Apple announces this, you're going to hear about it, even if you live on a, a dirt floor in Mumbai. You might not be able to afford it, but you're going to hear about it. 
and that's going to open up the industry for other approaches, cheaper approaches to get get the reach. Yeah. Is do we know what the product is? Oh yeah. So it's a headset. It's sort of sort of like this Apple AirPods Max headphone, right? It covers your ears and it covers your eyes. And then it puts you in a, into an IMAX movie theater. Wow. Or it puts you into new augmented reality games where you can play new games with your family or friends in 3D in your kitchen. Going to be pretty mind-blowing. That'd be, I'm a musician. It'd be awesome to be able to record uh, just remotely with a, and get sort of like a virtual band. Well, the headphones are going to be surround sound, and there's bone transference uh, speaker on this new product that's going to give you really good music. Well, people who listen to music are going to like this headphone. Cool. That thing. It's going to let you hear music in, in Dolby. A- Apple has invested a lot in Dolby Atmos already. Spotify still doesn't have a Dolby Atmos system. They don't have any Dolby Atmos. They're, they're shitty music compared to Apple Music, right? And so when the headphone comes next year, you're going to really understand why that matters. Because the band is going to be all around you. Epic. Do we know what the product's called? The rumor is it's called the Apple View because it's a it's a radiance field viewer. Cool, full circle. So you want to go to the Taj Mahal and walk around? Pull up your Apple Viewer, right? If you want to go to Washington D.C. and walk around the Smithsonian, pull up the Apple Viewer. You want to go to a concert? Pull up the Apple Viewer. You want to go to a Harvard classroom and learn something? Pull up the Apple Viewer, right? So this this is. Anyways, whether or not it's successful, it's going to be the most expensive product launch of all time. So it's going to be a big deal. Facebook, same kind of, what are they doing with spatial? Obviously Oculus and what's their Achilles heel? Meta's Achilles heel is they don't have a phone in your pocket. And that comes straight from, I I went and met with John Carmack, who works at Meta, who's a fellow, you know, important person at Meta. And he said, oh, I think we need to do a phone. We we might need to come out with a phone because this is a real advantage for Apple. Because Apple can put the 5G radios, the ba- a huge battery, right? Uh, and a bunch of GPUs in here, a bunch of math computers, and uh, a few other things, and have a controller, right? In the future, I'm going to be using this as a controller to shoot things or type things, right? The phone really is going to be a big advantage and, and Facebook doesn't have that. So they're having to try to compete with Apple and it's everybody who's seen both says it's not even in competition. Apple's going to completely cream Meta, except for one thing, price, because Meta is advertising supported, su- subsidized. The advertising business model is going to lower the price. They're, they're going to keep putting a thousand dollar bill into the product to keep the price down. So they'll get all the poor people. Apple will get all the rich people. Facebook does not have the trust. I do a lot of consumer research. That's what it's sort of my hobby. And that's sort of what I've done for 40 years is understand consumer behavior. People don't trust Facebook, Meta, right? When you start saying, oh, you're going to have two cameras on your face and it's going to know everything about you. It's going to know where your sex toys are in your, in your bathroom, in your bedroom. All right, what? <laughs> yeah, you're going to open the drawer while you're wearing this device. It's going to scan everything and you're going to go, oh, you have three sex toys, right? <laughs> Amazon sells sex toys, right? So start thinking this through. <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, are you are you willing to do that with a meta device on your face? 
no, no, not at all. I don't want Mark Zuckerberg to know about my sex life. Do you care about Apple doing that? Yeah, I trust Apple with my heart rate already. I trust Apple with my phone. I trust Apple with my TV. It's yeah, and the and the incentive with their apples, they're not ad supported, so that's a it's a different energy or, or you know it's a incentive. Yeah, no, eventually we'll trust them too, so they'll figure it out as well. But up front, it's going to be a problem for them, and you see that in the sales. The Quest is selling million and a half units a quarter. You know, Apple sells a million and a half of these every two days. Yeah. Well, what is the Quest? The headset, the VR headset that Zuckerberg made. Yeah. So that's sort of the Oculus is core tech. Is that what it is? They don't call it Oculus anymore. They changed the names. <laughs> this is why it's so fucking confusing. It's like, uh, what do we call this thing? Nobody knows what a Quest is. You know, it's like, it's like an Oculus Quest, you know, Facebook Oculus Quest. Oh my gosh. Or an Oculus anymore. It's a meta quest too. <laughs> it's like, ah. Well, what's Facebook doing right? What, what advantage? They're investing $3 billion a quarter because they realize that Apple can put them out of business if they don't. And Zuckerberg deserves a lot of credit. He's the best strategist I've ever met in the Valley. He deserves a lot of credit for investing for a long time in this technology and getting, getting a lot of really interesting things done. I mean, the, the Quest 2 is a, a really important product for people to buy and understand. It's 300 bucks, so it's not, you know, if you're poor, yeah, that's a lot of money. But if you're in our position, 300 bucks is, you know, not going to kill us, right? It's not three. Three grand is going to kill us. We're going to be looking at that. My Apple credit card has $3,500 on it. And, you know, Three grand is like fills up the whole credit card. <laughs> so it's like, ah. Oh. Have you met Mark? Yeah, I, I hung out with him several times at Davos and other places right, for hours. He's he's a really interesting, interesting dude. You know, he's um, he's a really brilliant strategist. I was sitting next to Mark Benioff at a Facebook press conference. Mark Benioff runs Salesforce, and Mark looks up where me and goes. That boy laid down some strategy today. <laughs> so, yeah, it's an interesting world that we are all watching these these people push uh, around. But yeah, um, he doesn't have the trust of consumers, and he doesn't have the hardware. One of the reasons he changed the name of the company is to try to blunt the Apple attack that's coming next year. Yeah, you know, now everybody understands that Facebook is a metaverse company. Wow, what the fuck? Did, why did he do that? Next year, you're going to understand because Apple's going to attack that. Oh, the web. I don't, in a glasses world, there, yeah, there's a web browser. You can pull up a 2D screen in your in your glasses and look at the web. But what we're talking about is soon you're going to have a digital assistant walking around with you. I mean, a virtual being, you know, whether it's a dog, a little dog running around and that talks to you or a robot, a little virtual robot. In a way, I'm talking crazy talk, but this is coming. If you look at Unreal Engine, for instance, they already have virtual beings and they're really pretty good. And if you look at what the AI's teams are doing in search, Siri soon is going to be very conversational and be a lot more knowledgeable about, about the world. Right. There, I had dinner with the guy who runs Siri at Apple and I asked him, what are you learning about 
being at Apple. What are you learning about Siri now that you're at Apple? How, how has your experience changed? He goes, I, I've learned that Google is beating us. I'm like, how do you know Google's beating us? He goes, we instrumented Google and we instrumented us and their AI is learning at a faster rate than our AI is. And that's going to matter. Eventually, they're going to kill us. So we have to rewrite Siri from scratch to learn faster than their AI. And we haven't yet seen that Siri. The current Siri is stupid, like it was five years ago or six years. Right? That's not in a couple of years. In a couple of years, we're going to get a new Siri that's going to be mind-blowing. Yeah. I got to meet Stephen Wolfram a few times working with Nedry, and he was talking about he he was sort of instrumental in early Siri. What about Google? So what, I mean, so this so their advantage is that they're sort of the smartest people in the room. They're sort of systems thinkers to the core. Where where are they winning? Was They understand human beings more than any other company because they have all of our search data. They know what links we, what search terms we use, what links we clicked on, where we went after, after that. They are the only ones who have that data. Amazon has 10,000 people working on Alexa to try to compete with that because they don't have the data at Amazon for all of that other stuff. They have all the data about your product purchases, but they don't have the data of what websites you search and where, you, you know, what links every, everybody use. Uh, Google has huge advantages. Google will come out after Apple because Apple is the only one who can educate the market. Google can't. Google cannot stick with new things. Google is not trusted with new things. Google kills things. Google pisses people off. I'm pissed off about Google Glass. I'm pissed off about Google Buzz. I'm pissed off about Google Reader. They don't stick with things that they should stick with and keep investing in. They don't. So I don't trust them. And neither does anybody else. Even though I use their services every fucking day, it runs my life. My calendar's in Google. My email's in Google. My maps are in Google. My search is Google. My TV's Google. <laughs> Google is integrated into my life. We, 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 by the way, we love uh, YouTube TV. And we we have a we have a Samsung frame that and it's so killer. Yeah, I have a Sony TV that has Google operating system running the TV. So and I have YouTube TV running on Google's operating system. So they get me twice. <laughs> They're not going anywhere, in other words. And so if if Google came out with a lightweight pair of glasses that competed with Apple, my prediction is they would do more with the AI than good Apple could do. They will have more answers to more questions when you're starting to talk to this thing or having your digital assistant asking you for data. Like if you're trying to learn something, Google has that. If you want to learn how to weld something, you go to YouTube, right? Hey, how do I weld X? You know, how do I weld two pieces of aluminum together? Right? So beyond Google Maps, what else does Google have spatially? Well, the maps are big enough. I mean, they, they stalk you as you walk around the world with running Google Maps. They, they get, if you look through your uh, data that it collects, it collects every fucking thing you do in the world, like every shopping mall you've ever went to or every church or every strip club or every <laughs> Google knows. That's it. That's enough right there to. So a little fun fact, you might know this because you're an insider, but so Google Maps was acquired. It was a company called Keyhole. And the founders of that left Google and got funded by Google yeah. to build a company called Niantic. And Niantic is the biggest augmented reality company today. And they're, they built uh, Pokemon Go. So they're the technology stack underneath Pokemon Go. 
And they're using that data that they collected from all those people using Pokemon Go all over the world to build a new kind of platform for developers to build new location-based apps on the real world, right? That's what they're, that's where they're going. And we'll see if they can compete and, and survive, you know, whatever Apple or Google does, you know, whether it matters in a few years, but yeah, those kinds of companies get me interested because it's like, oh yeah, you're moving faster. You're iterating faster. You're already the number one augmented reality company. Google doesn't really have that, you know? So do they get bought back in? I don't know. There's a lot of plays still to happen. Google also invested in Waymo, which is a self-driving car company. That collects a lot of yeah. data. Mm-hmm. And is already driving in San Francisco. So I don't like their technology stack because it's an early technology stack. It can't drive down roads. It's never been scanned. Tesla can drive down roads. It's never been on before, even really weird and wacky roads. AI now is split into eras, right? You had the 1.0 era, which uh, Waymo was built on. Then you had an interim era where you're starting to get faster. And now we're into this new era where the robots learn so fast. They learn in real time. They they can see the world in real time and move around it like a human being does. So, yeah, it's interesting. Like in the context, I was just kind of close the loop because I'm, I'm loyal to the Esri folks. They uh, Google actually gave up on trying to compete with them a few years back in the enterprise market. Yeah, yeah, because they don't have the infrastructure and they don't have the data. Esri is um, has a lot of data about like shopping malls or locations, right? That Google just doesn't even think about it, doesn't care about because Google's a consumer. Well, and they also didn't, Google didn't want to fuss with having to deal with all the client server, you know, setups. And Esri sort of supports, you know, versions of their software that's 20 years old. So, because it's, you know, selling into enterprise, it's. It'll be interesting to see where Esri is in five years because a lot of things are going to be studied elsewhere right about the real world and so is is esri as relevant in five years as they are today i don't think they will what advice would you give them partner with a self-driving car company and get the get a lot of data fast because you're going to need to compete with elon Elon can drive a Tesla via a nightclub and know how busy the nightclub is, right? Esri can't. They don't have cars on the street. Yeah, but they're also selling sort of infrastructure technology to sort of do build their core is like map making, you know, data. I did that the word moving into a world where you're going to have 3D maps that are neural radiance fields, right? And does Esri have the ability to do that? I don't know. I, they don't have the data. They don't have cars rolling around the street. So they do not have the data that is going to keep them relevant. So get the data. That's my first advice is how are we going to get the data? How are we going to get Esri to compete with this in the future? Got to hook up with GM or somebody, you know, and get some data from some self-driving car company or hook up with Tesla and license their data and do their special sauce to it yeah where where as they their their core like one of the things they could do is take basically build a a dashboard to ingest all of this data that the cities could use the problem is location data is about to radically change because of the robots and because of the augmented reality glasses so i don't see how it remains relevant or as relevant as today because 
tomorrow a new thing's coming and they don't have an answer to it. So if I was working there, I'd be like, that's job number one to have an answer to that. Otherwise we're going to go out of business. That's what happens with paradigm shifts. Big companies go away. And that's the lesson. It, we should look back at WordPerfect and Borland and RIM and Nokia and realize when a, when a paradigm shift comes, it does away with big companies that are important. Yeah. So they better get a fire under their ass and figure out how to remain relevant to this new world that's coming. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue into NVIDIA. So I bought some more NVIDIA on sale and I'm just really, really excited about them. What, what has you excited about them and what's, where are they winning and what's their Achilles heel? You should pay attention to Omniverse. That's their new strategy. And Omniverse does two things. It joins the GPU compute that NVIDIA has on data centers. They have millions of computers that are joined together with fiber optic cables and uh, VMware and NVIDIA partnered to make virtualization of that block of computers so that you can see one big GPU in the cloud, right? And have a, access to a huge amount of AI compute, right? So now we can train a model that does all sorts of weird shit up in the, in the cloud. And that's going to be real important soon. And I'll explain why. They tie that with the digital twin of the real world, the radiance field view of the real world. So compute plus radiance field makes Omniverse. Omniverse runs robots, augmented reality glasses, autonomous cars, and these new virtual things that are going to be rolling around with us, right? Or are going to be in our 3D space, all with one Hydra that controls it all. So now... NVIDIA has a way to get data from an augmented reality uh, headset or an autonomous car or a robot or a virtual being rolling around a neural radiance field with you, right? That's a huge amount of data coming into a mothership. And that's going to let NVIDIA launch glasses. In fact, they just showed them off last week. Their prototype is really thin. It does a lot of things. Keep in mind, What's happening with computer is also real interesting. On your phone, you have a lot of computers here in the phone, right? You have a GPU, you have a CPU, you have a lot of memory on your phone. In the future, all of that is probably going to be in one of those NVIDIA data centers. And it's going to, all the, all the processing of what you're seeing in 3D around you, like if you're in a video game, all that processing is going to be done up on the cloud and streamed down to your glasses, which means the glasses don't need to have very many computers at all. They can be very, very small. All they need to do is display, uh, share, you know, collect the uh, 3D image from the cloud with an antenna and then have a display. Very small computers compared to what's in my phone, right? Because all the work is being done up on the data, set, uh, data center. Make sense? So they're going to be able to come out with some mind-blowing augmented reality glasses, and they have the whole system to run it. Who else has the whole system to run it? Not many companies. Yeah, their developer program is really strong, right? They have the best neural radiance field producers. They have the strategy. They have the GPUs. They have the compute. They have the engineering. They have a lot of things. They have autonomous cars rolling around Silicon Valley, right? So 
they're playing with a lot of things. That's their strength. The weakness is the consumer doesn't really know them as a brand. Sure. Right. Isn't that something on the kid's computer? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, uh, or the, the Bitcoin miners use. For, yeah. Yeah. And it's not a, it's not a strong brand. So they have to create that brand for consumer. If they're going to sell glasses against Apple or Tesla, I mean, here's another one. I know who the CEO of NVIDIA is, right? Yeah. Oh, you read my mind. I don't know who the CEO is and I am, I'm in the market. And you own stock in the company, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? So compared to that to Elon Musk, who has 90 million followers on Twitter and owns Twitter now, it owns distribution, right? Distribution of news. So are we going to hear about the Tesla glasses or the NVIDIA glasses? Are we going to think about buying the Tesla glasses because we just bought a Cybertruck? What's the reason we buy the NVIDIA ones instead of the Tesla ones? I, I don't understand that yet. So that's sort of... If I was working at NVIDIA, I'd be thinking about how do we build a brand that people understand on the street and uh, and feel like it's so much better than the Tesla or the Apple or the Amazon or the Snap glasses. Yeah. Who is the CEO of NVIDIA and have you met this person? I have not met him. Mr. Long, I think is the name. Jensen. I've seen his, I've, I've been at his keynotes. They're pretty good. He's smart. Obviously, he's running a, a a major company in Silicon Valley that's leading the future, and he'll be important. Even if he doesn't win with consumer with the glasses, he's going to be important because a lot of a lot of developers are going to build with Omniverse, right? If you're building a robot, I would be looking at Omniverse. If I'm building augmented reality thing, right, I'd be looking at Omniverse. If I'm building a autonomous car, I'd be thinking about it, right? And he'll win enough of those deals to make them to matter. So I think your investment's pretty safe. It's certainly not going out of business. <laughs> you know? So just hold that stock. That's the holder. Yeah. So Jensen Wong founded NVIDIA in 1993 and has served its uh, inception as president, CEO, and member of the board. Starting out in PC graphics, NVIDIA helped build the gaming market and largest entertainment industry in the world today. Yada, yada. Well, this is amazing. I mean, what incredible survey of your career and of uh, sort of the emerging future, um, Robert. Well, we didn't even touch on anything I did. Yeah. <laughs> you got a little little salt on the meal, but you haven't even figured out the meal yet. <laughs> well, one of the core themes of the, the Curdy D show, Robert, is humanizing success. And I've shared some of the challenges I've overcome, you know, with my, helping my dad get sober from a drug and alcohol problem when I was in, in college. I actually pulled out my chip. Where's my chip? <laughs> yeah. I staged an intervention. Yeah, he told me uh, F you, and we didn't see him for a, a, over a year. And finally, he uh, hit rock bottom. And and uh, he was the episode number one of the Curdy D show is with my dad, and he had just celebrated his 21st sober birthday. And it was pretty special to be able to tease him that his sober birthday was old enough to drink and we both had a good laugh about it. And now he's just an incredible, you know, beacon of light to the community. How does he start his day, by the way? Because I've heard a a lot of people who've done that, you know, survived sober for decades. And there's some commonalities. I want to see if your dad figured out, you know, some of the commonalities of how to wake up and how to start your day. Yeah, well, yeah, he he has a very very consistent journaling practice. He gets up in the morning and he journals for a half an hour every day. 
I, I have to start doing that. That's a commonality I hear from many people, both successful people and people who have hit rock bottom and dug themselves out, right? Yeah. Well, I know for me, like if I'm not meditating in the morning, I become a grump and I'm just, I lose that, that little couple milliseconds to be able to be more responsive. If I don't meditate, I become reactive. And what, what kinds of things does he journal? Does he journal like gratitude? Things? Yeah, I think just, yeah, I, yeah uh, I, I could ask him. I'll, I need to ask him and find out. I'll text you. Yeah, that's a common commonality among people who've become successful in their lives, right? That they do this kind of uh, process. Uh, one guy told me that mo- most pe- people who are running big companies wake up at five in, in the morning. And there's a reason for that from your brain perspective. And then they start journaling, meditating, exercising, right? Then they go to work. Yeah. Yeah, I get that clearing. Well, having said all that, what's a, a challenge uh, professionally or personally that you overcome that you're comfortable sharing? And what gift did that challenge give you? <laughs> My career blew up five years ago. And the New York Times reported on that I assaulted a woman at a party while drunk. I don't remember it that, that much. So I don't remember it at all, to, truth be told. But yeah, that blew up my career, uh, radically changed my career, radically changed how people react to me, you know, what kinds of things I get invited to and stuff like that. Right. Um, makes it very hard to get a job. What's the gift it gave me? Empathy for other people. Now I look at the world very differently than I did 10 years ago. Still, still work in progress, though. That's why I was interested in how your dad started, because I'm, I'm having to step up again. You know, it, life never stops, right? You think, you think you figure it out, then you, you got to get better. You know, something's not working. You start looking for change. Yeah. So that's really uh, credible. I've sort of, I saw the the news a few years back and, and it's just pretty uh, tough to watch. I can't even imagine having to come to the realization of that sort of thing. And I have a lot of respect for you being able to, you know, just like my dad had to, you know, he did some really terrible things to the family and stuff and he still has a lot of guilt about it. But, you know, he talks about uh, living amends. And uh, I do believe in the power of redemption. You know, I think that society, you know, there's a lot of transformation that can happen, you know, so... Hats off to the journey. For context for the audience, it sounds there was essentially you were sort of quote unquote hashtag canceled as part of the Me Too movement. Yeah. So, yeah, it happened to a bunch of people. Yeah. I was never charged, you know, so I didn't have to go through the legal process like Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. You know, I've, I've helped people that I've, I've saved people's lives. They come up to me and talk about about what I did for him, you know, I mean, not quite like you, but, um, one guy came up to me after a conference and, and said, I read your post post about being sexually abused as a child. And that completely changed my viewpoint and unlocked my head. And I started talking to my wife for the first time about that and completely changed his life. So I've helped people and then I've hurt people. It's a lot more fun to help people. (laughs) It's a lot better for your sanity to help people then they bring a lot of pain into people's lives yeah 
Yeah, I think the, one of the insights that that you shared when we talked a few weeks ago was that you're sort of you had this uh, trauma early on as a you know the sexual abuse that you dealt with, and that that trauma created a trauma for other people, and sort of like the trauma compounds. And um, that's what happens if you don't treat trauma because you don't know that you're traumatized, right? You don't think about that way. Yeah, but it leaks onto everybody else because you're hurting inside, and you do things to try to fix that by drinking or yeah. So it's a hard mental loop to break out of the, you know, your dad's lucky that he was able to break out of it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was in hard, it's really hard for people to break out of. Addiction. Yeah. Yeah. He was mainlining methamphetamines with a needle. Yeah. You know, I think the statistics on it are like low single digits for people to recover from that. It's really hard to come back because, you know, that's a hard mental loop to break out of. Yeah, the episode before you that we're launching this week with Rick Schrimmer, a good friend of mine, we paid tribute to our friend Denny Dancer, oh, rest in peace, who passed away from a heroin addiction about a year and a half ago through COVID. One place that VR is being being used in a lot of research because um, up at the University of Washington, they found that VR is better for burn victims at getting rid of their pain than morphine is way better, actually. And so if you go to vrpain.com, you can read their research about VR. And therefore, we can solve many people's pains with VR and not give them so much oxycodone. Um, you know, not give them so much opioids yeah. for pain relief, right? And yeah. that'll help not addict people because opioids are very addicting. They're makes you feel good, really good. <laughs> and it's really hard to quit because you feel really good when you're popping those pills, right? And then, yeah, and if you have unresolved emotional pain from some trauma in your past, it feels really good and it's really hard to get off. Yeah, there's a Ray Dalio, the CEO of Bridgewater. He's been releasing a lot of content and he, he had a new video that came out recently in the last week or so about kind of the changing world order uh, that we're living in this sort of things. Things have happened many times in the past in history, just maybe not happened in our lifetime. And he sort of says that like the key for us to all sort of move forward as a society are two things. For one, for all of us to be the best that we can be. So hats off to to you, hats off to everybody else that's trying to like, you know, move move forward and 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 secondly that we need to get along better. And that, you know, I think this is where we need to be think more forgiving that we all fuck up and we all do shit that we're not happy about. So like I just don't think it's very constructive to, you know, point a scarlet letter on people and not give them a second chance. It's it's hard to forgive people, <laughs> particularly when they're taking away, you know, things like abortion rights, you know, pregnancy, rights, you know, healthcare rights. It's hard. It's hard to get along with the other side when they're doing that. Yeah. Well, that is yeah, it's complex. It's, it's it's easy to say those two things. It's a lot bigger of a challenge. But I think like, I mean, any I found that I can't change the chance that I'm going to change you and get you to change. Zero chance that I can change myself. 
near zero. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's better than changing you. <laughs> I can change myself. I can't change you at all. So, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I'm a big Ryan Holiday fan. He's been writing a lot about stoicism. He studied with Robert Greene, and his he had an Instagram post yesterday that was really simple, profound. He says like the core of stoicism is to have really high standards for yourself and then just let everything and everybody else give everybody a lot of grace and a lot of slack. And that that's sort of like a good path. So I wish we ran things by the data, but we don't, you know, we, we're, we, you know, many of us have, have different belief systems and that informs who we are. And it's a hard one. I used to be very religious and on that side of the fence. So, I, you know, in a way, I'm hating myself if I hate you. <laughs> I was that way for a decade. So, you know, it's like. Robert, you've been so generous to your time. There's a couple of last round uh, rapid fire questions we'll wrap up. So, if you could have any band play a singer, songwriter, rapper play any venue anywhere in the world, past, present, or future, who would it be and where? I, w- I wish I could have seen the Beatles. Sweet. They're not necessarily my favorite music to put on the, on the Sonos at the moment. I've seen 150 professional music- musicians from the front row or closer, actually, because I had photo passes. So I was in front of the front row a lot of times. So I don't have a lot of needs in terms of music. If you Where, where would you want to see the Beatles? Like uh, any venue that you'd love to see them? Any venue, you know. I sounds like maybe like a VR VR applicant VR venue. Oh, they're bringing back to life old, uh, you know, like Ray Orbison is playing concerts around the United States right now on uh, augmented reality screening, you know, with a real band. So, you know, it's it's crazy. It's crazy what we're doing. Yeah, well, I think I think this is a question I ask at the end of every show, and it and it's it's you just totally gave me a mind meld with the fact that you know what maybe uh, this question actually there's a world that you know who knows maybe there's a a VR playlist in the future I could create to give all the past guests that said a venue and a place, and I could send them the opportunity to go do it. I have better one. I have a I have a playlist on my blog. I have seventy different playlists on Apple Music of all the Dolby Atmos spatial audio music that's on Apple Music. It's like right now it's twenty five thousand songs. Cool. If you want to listen to the best music, just look me up. <laughs> Dolby Atmos Scoble on Google, and it'll pull up that list and. So uh, if people want to get in touch with you online, you're pretty you're really active on Twitter at Scobalizer. Yeah, not, I'm on Twitter all day long. Um, LinkedIn. How, how do you spell that for the audience? Scoble is my last name, S-C-O-B-L-E, and then add I-Z-E-R, Scobleizer. On the webs. Robert, and I have so much of an appreciation for you. I appreciate who you've been for me in my career, and I know for so many others. And, and uh, any the little thing I can do to pay it forward is my pleasure, and I hope you have a wonderful week, man. Yeah, and I'll be in San Francisco soon, and I can't wait to see you. Gotta come. Oh. We're an hour and 15 minutes away, but you know, we can come up and see you or you can come down here. Sounds good. Thanks again to my friend Robert Scoble for being our guest. I so appreciate his humility, honesty, and his sense of the emerging future. And I'm excited to see what Robert does next. 
I'm at Curdy D on Twitter and Instagram. Also, Kurt Deridix on LinkedIn. Till next time, Curdy D loves you. Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit curdyd.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curdy D Show.